the greatest risk you can take is not taking any risk at all. And that's where that risk averse point, uh, it becomes super relevant to, to your point where by being risk averse, you're actually taking on a bunch of other risks potentially without, without knowing it. And so being aware of that, I think is a really valuable, uh, insight to have and, and one way to avoid complacency, but also to know actually what trade-offs you're actively making as opposed to thinking it's the safer option. Because yeah, like you said, it's, you, you don't know what you're giving up instead. You just heard from Donish, the head of crypto at Canadian unicorn Wealthsimple and Western Ivy graduate. On today's episode, we talked through his transition from consulting to fintech, risk-taking, and his thoughts on Bitcoin and crypto at large. This was a super fun episode to record, and we think y'all will love it. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Excited to, excited to chat with you both. Absolutely. So, the, I mean, crypto is a very interesting space. Um, you've done a ton of really cool stuff coming up to this point, and you know, I think you've had a pretty interesting journey so far too. So how about we just backtrack a bit? Let's start at the top. Uh, where did you go to school and what did you go to school for? Yeah, sure. So if we're talking about university, I started uh, in at Western in London, Ontario. So a couple hours west from, from Toronto. And I was in the business school there, um, Ivy, which is a pretty kind of standard undergrad business experience. I kind of went into university knowing what I didn't want to do, which was like science and engineering and anything like too technical. And so business was kind of the, the only thing that was left <laughs> as a, <laughs> as like a safe path. And, and yeah, so I decided to go to Western and Ivy and, and I had an awesome time there and, and met a lot of great people and a lot of cool experiences. Cool. How did that experience kind of uh, peak your interest in consulting and like, how did you decide to kind of start your, your career there? Yeah. So yeah, this is interesting. Cause I think, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners kind of going through this, this similar journey. And, uh, for me, it was a combination of one wanting to go somewhat down the safer path. So growing up, I was a pretty risk averse person and, you know, like a typical type, a high achieving, you know, keener student, um, wanting to check off all of the boxes and, that led me to do well in school and, and, uh, you know, be really focused on like what the next milestone was. And, and that's kind of how I went through my whole, um, like youth upbringing and, and well into university. And so going into Ivy, the, the option of joining consulting was, was super interesting because it gave me the opportunity to have like a much wider, breadth of exposure to other industries, other companies, and, you know, really figure out what it is I wanted to do. Uh, but at the same time, give you a strong network and give you the right foundational skill set to really accelerate your development early in your career and, and really maximize what you could do next. And so, you know, part of it was like optimizing for that and, and seeing what people ahead of me had done and, and seeing how, how that served them well was, was like, I think a big way how young people make decisions and it was, wasn't any different for me. Uh, but at the same time, while I was in university, I also joined the startup accelerator program in, in Toronto called the next 36, uh, mm-hmm. which was the, the first year actually that it had launched. And so that to me was like a totally eye-opening experience for, 
uh, entrepreneurship. And it was the first time I was really exposed to this world of technology mm-hmm. and startups. And I'd say, you know, in terms of like pivotal moments in my, in my personal like history, I think that was, that experience was definitely one of those and, and really opened my eyes to what was possible and, and this whole world that I didn't know existed. And, and so I was super keen on doing something in tech and startups, but I was facing this challenge of like taking the safe path and versus going down this much more risky and unknown path and ultimately choosing, you know, ultimately chose the safe path, but knew within a couple of years at, at uh, BCG where I started that I was really eager to go back into this world of, of technology and startups. And so, uh, yeah, left, left that and, and happy to talk about how it transpired after that, but, you know, I haven't looked back since then. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, the whole risk averse thing, and you know, you mentioned being a keener too. I just looked at Fod and just had a little chuckle there, but because Fod's a keener as well. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all the best people are, and it's it's interesting because like even just mentioning the whole um, wanting to go down or following that risk averse path, and there's an opportunity cost associated with everything, right? For some people, going down that risk averse path is actually riskier for them you know like you will end up at a point where maybe it's just complacency is just like a breast in your life and things start to get things start to slow down for you at that point and it's easy to settle into that but it's interesting that you chose consulting as the easy path because of course like it comes with its own stresses but it's a really good way as you said to get a glimpse into a bunch of different just worlds I guess you get thrown into a bunch of different projects but the only thing that, and this is something that I'm facing right now, so I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well, is that as I'm considering consulting, the only hesitation I have is that you don't really get to own something for a while, right? Like it's, you get, you catch a glimpse of it, you study up and then you uh, put forward your recommendation and that's kind of it, right? Do you feel like that's a fundamental shortcoming of consulting? Do you, do you like that aspect of it where you don't have to, do um, you don't have to be weighed down by one project for too long? Or do you wish that you could have had that opportunity to like, have owned something for a long period of time? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, your point earlier about trade-offs is, is very relevant to, to this question and, and, and your whole point in general. And, you know, maybe before I answer that question directly, one, one thing that came to mind when you mentioned this uh, topic on risk and risk averseness. Uh, one of the people that I look up to most, uh, Vinod Kosla from Kosla Ventures, one of his famous quotes is, uh, the greatest risk you can take is not taking any risk at all. And that's where that risk averse point, uh, it becomes super relevant to, to your point where by being risk averse, you're actually taking on a bunch of other risks potentially without, without knowing it. And so being aware of that, I think is a really valuable, uh, insight to have and, and, one way to avoid complacency, but also to know actually what trade-offs you're actively making as opposed to thinking it's the safer option. Because yeah, like you said, it's you don't know what you're giving up instead. Uh, and then on the consulting point specifically, uh, same thing, right? It's it's trade-offs. So yeah, you trade off the ability to maybe own something more hands-on or own it for a longer period of time. But at the same time, you benefit from huge exposure and, and a lot of breadth to working with different clients, with different people within, within your firm, uh, working on different types of problems. And so that can give you a really good sense of what it is that you enjoy or, or don't enjoy and who you like to work with and not work with. And for some people earlier in their career, that could be a really valuable set of data points to help inform 
how, you know, which direction they go, go in next. Um, but you have to know what, you know, at what cost that, that, that comes at, which is not necessarily getting the same level of depth that, that you, you might want in, in a particular, particular domain. And so, yeah, there's definitely, def- definitely pros and cons. Um, but I think it's, you know, more important to think about why you want to do something uh, rather than just jumping into the pros and cons, right? So for me, consulting was like a safe path because it it checked a lot of boxes. Uh, it gave you a strong network. It gave you a good brand. And and there through that, it enabled a bunch of other possibilities. But it was really just like kicking the can down the road, right? Of really having to make tough decisions about what you want to do because you don't really need to make any decisions about what you want by working at a, at a good consulting firm or investment bank or whatever. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think we're at a point now where, there's so much access to knowledge and the ability to create through the internet and, and other digital platforms that the world is just very different now than it was, you know, eight or 10 years ago when I was making this decision. And so uh, I really encourage young people to not be constrained by institutions and um, these confined, constrained paths that have been imposed on, on us by society and, you know, what people have done before you, because I think we just are in a very different world. And if you are, I think there's just a lot more different tangents and directions that people can go in that are, are very different from the way the world, you know, used to work even as early as, as five or 10 years ago. And so, uh, I think it's still a great option to go, go down consulting, but I think it's, you're doing yourself a disservice. I think if, uh, if you don't recalibrate to the world that we live in today, which people who are, might be giving you advice who are you know my age or older, just, just don't have the, the same data points, I think, to, to give good advice there. So, uh, yeah, I think, sorry, that's like a long-winded way of addressing the, the trade-off question. Oh, no, no, no. We, we encourage those because you touch on a bunch of different points so we can uh, start tackling it too. Um, one of those is that it's interesting you mentioned that we need some new paradigms because um, even in uh, a previous conversation we had with uh, Dr. Hadara, um, a prophet McMaster, this kind of came up as well. Um, this idea, you know, things are changing in some ways. It's easier to make certain choices in some ways. It's even harder to make certain choices, um, both attributing to the abundance of information, to the abundance of being connected to everything. Um, so considering that, I think that especially like Fouad and I, I think I would like to, I would like to think that we both pursue somewhat of a non-traditional path in that, you know, we are both, uh, pursuing some entrepreneurial ventures like on the side and it's again like it's hard to do that sometimes when we're there's this constant fear of failure there's this constant fear of everybody watching you along the way and um, one thing that I'm personally trying to face right now is trying to build up my technological like foundations coming from a science background so I, I know it's not the business background you came from but like I would love to hear how you started to make that transition into that because I mean, like, I would love to kind of learn from where you uh, you got your technological chops from. Because it's pretty impressive. Get going from no technical background to being the head of crypto now at Wealth Simple. That's a huge jump to make, right? So, kind of, how did that transition look? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you know, on paper, that looks like a huge jump at certain blocks in in time. But you know, in reality, just like everything else, it's it's development that happens day in and day out over a much longer time period, right? So for me, knowing when I wanted to transition from a consulting background into startups, the first challenge I had was figuring out what skill set and role was most relevant to my experience coming from a super non-technical background. 
And so the, the lowest hanging fruit in that transition was focusing on more non-technical roles at startups. Like uh, in my case, it was the business operations and strategy team at, uh, at a fintech company in San Francisco called NerdWallet. And once I was there, I'm able to leverage the skill set and experience that I bring from the consulting experience, but apply it in a, a startup context. And so that transition is made much easier when you're able to leverage what you're good at and then be, be able to do it in an environment where you can cultivate some of the other things you might not be as strong at. And then once you're kind of in the environment, then I think you have much more um, both flexibility and opportunity to cultivate these other skills that, that you want to, to build up. And so for me, that was transitioning into product. I thought that role was super interesting as a domain. I think the ability to really work on problems in a, in a super hands-on way and, and do it in this multidisciplinary function where you're working with engineers and designers and marketing and you know essentially every function in the company contributes to the product. And, and as a product manager, you are at the center of coordinating across all of these different uh, teams, teams in the company and, and really bring a product to life. And so that challenge was like a very different proposition. And sure, some of the skills from a consulting experience are valuable, but there's a lot that you have to learn through, through just being in this new context. And so, again, it's about adapting to the environment and, and leveraging the knowledge that exists in the company. It's leveraging knowledge that exists online and through, you know, lots of experts. And, and through that, I just became better at, at the product skill set. And then... And then over time, I think you just figure out, you know, what is it that you're good at and, you know, what do you want to do and figure out what are the path, what's the path to getting there? There's definitely no, no shortcut. And so, you know, I'd be, it'd be great if I had like five tips for you to do X and then, you know, you're, you're ready to, to take on whatever you think you've set your path on. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's just a, it's a process and, and it has to be a priority. And, and I think making that intention clear to those around you who can help direct your uh, direct you into that direction or, or enable opportunities for you is a, is an awesome way to both have mentors that can help you do it, but also make your intention clear so that when opportunities do present themselves, you are, uh, you're someone that, that, that comes top of mind for, for people to, to take, take these things on. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question directly, but, but, but I'd summarize by saying it's, it's about really being proactive with your own journey and, and, uh, taking advantage of, of whatever resources and, and people around you to, to help shape that journey, you know, much more effectively than uh, kind of being passive about it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one thing that I'm curious about is obviously like, you know, you're building, you're building yourself to kind of take advantage of these opportunities as they arise, right? You want to broadcast your network that you're open to the stuff, you know, you want to build the relationships with the right mentors so that you can have exposure to these spaces. But um going from like kind of a consulting role to a startup role is like a pretty large transition. So like, how did you know that NerdWallet was the right place to start that transition? Uh, Cause I'm trying to think forward in my career. Uh, and I'm really actually really interested in the product space as well. And I don't plan on being an engineer, you know, forever. And I'm trying to think like, at what point is that transition possible? Like at what point have you said, mm-hmm. look, like I was at BCG, I gained these skills, I gained this network, and now I'm ready to do this opportunity for this reason. Like, how did you kind of reason through that process of, of that transition? Yeah. So that, that particular transition was very, uh, like I was very set on working at a startup. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and the consulting wasn't for me. 
And I was also very sad on moving to San Francisco to do it because in 2015, which is when I did this, uh, you know, I was like 23 at the time. And if I could do anything to, if I could be anywhere in the world, uh, to work, to work at a startup, uh, you know, San Francisco was a place to be, and there was nothing, you know, tying me down to Toronto or, or anywhere else. And so, uh, I think just having that conviction that that's what I wanted just helped me skip all of this, like internal conversations around, should I, or shouldn't I, like, I just knew that that's what I wanted. And then once that was done, then it was just figuring about how do I optimize for getting the best possible opportunity. And so nerd wallet for a few reasons ended up being the best choice because it, uh, had an established BizOps team with other experienced leaders from Silicon Valley who had helped build that team. And so I knew I would be surrounded by people who had done this before and, and would be able to provide the right foundation to build that skill set, which, which was super important. Uh, and then through my process, talking to them, it, it was pretty clear that I would have a lot of autonomy and ownership over important parts of the business. And so that same level of like ownership and autonomy that you get from a consulting environment uh, it was translating in, in, inside a, a startup. So that, that was that's what made it most appealing to me as, as a role and, and the company. But I think it was that prior conviction and, and knowledge that this is definitely what I want to do that helped me uh, overcome some of the initial like inertia of wanting to start the process in the first place. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of interesting parallels with like Simon Sinek's maybe step talk, like start with why. And like you were mentioning before, like you got to know why you want to do a role before, you know, you, you tally up the like the pros and cons and like, all those sorts of lists are helpful in making your decision. But if you don't have like an overarching like reason you want to do this, then, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, just pedant a pedantic exercise to kind of go through that. So yeah, that's a, uh, that's good advice. I think I'll keep that in mind for sure. Yeah, it's interesting that you were so intentional, intentional about every step along the way. Like, that's something that like, as you're going through the story that really like makes itself evident, which is really interesting. Um, just before Fwad jumps to his next uh, question, I'm curious because this is something I've heard and this is all just hearsay. So I don't know if this is actually true, but apparently there's bad blood between consultants and like startup and the startup world, like, and people in the startup world don't really like consultants is, did you see any of that at all? Or is, was I just being lying to, lied to? Uh, I mean, I think there's, there's some truth to that for sure. Um, I personally didn't experience it, but you know, I can see where that sentiment comes from. You know, when you look at, what it takes to be a consultant. You usually have people who are super smart and capable, but have been, have, have gotten to a consulting environment through like a very rigid system and have rarely ever built and or operated on complex problems themselves. And so if you're an entrepreneur or, or a CEO that's you know built a, a successful company, it's hard to imagine like, you know, how could this person who's never done this come in and tell me how to run my business, right? So I think if you say it that way, it's it's easy to empathize with like why they might have that feeling. But I think the answer is, you know, much more complicated than that because naturally there's a lot of intelligent people who who are in, in consulting and have lots of great experiences and is part of the reason why when they leave consulting can end up being very successful and have been super successful across every function in a technology company. And so- I think, I think that like dichotomy is, is kind of a Silicon Valley trope and the reality is somewhere in between, right? Where, yeah, you have consultants that are not cut out for working in a startup because their mental model and ways of operating just don't conform to what it takes to actually grind day in and day out and, and build a business and do the hard work. And then there are others who adapt super well and actually thrive in a startup environment because they have a 
really strong foundation that allows them to come in and really bring the skill sets of, of what they do well into, into a company and help organize, you know, the chaos, which usually is what you find in, in a, in a startup that's growing super fast and, and, uh, doing well. So yeah, I think, I think it's a, it's one of those sound bites that you hear a lot. And I think the reality is it's the answer somewhere in the middle. For sure. It's always easier to, I guess, kind of paint things in the, with a broad stroke, but the reality is always going to be somewhere in between. Um, cool. So uh, I want to get to your time at Wellsimple. And I think a lot of listeners will be really interested to hear this and kind of transition the conversation uh, to crypto. Because uh, I actually remember when I interned at Wellsimple in the fall of 2019, your uh, crypto was still an idea at Wellsimple. Wellsimple Trade didn't support crypto yet. Uh, and I remember this presentation you gave in front of the whole company, uh, kind of like talking about, you know, the research you've been doing on crypto and, and, and sort of pitching it to the whole company as, as a thing that we were going to start. Um, so walk me through how crypto started as just an idea on Wellsimple Trade uh, while you were leading it and, and to what it's become today with, you know, the rise of like NFTs, um, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum being supported on the platform. Um, obviously, you know, this new position had a crypto being made. I'm assuming there's a lot of expansion coming from that. Although, you know, if there's things you can't tell us with that, that's fine too. Um, but yeah, walk us through that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think one thing I, I love, I love about Wellsimple is the fact that we, as a company have always been really, uh, intentional, but also, um, very efficient with launching and testing new products. And, and we knew from the beginning that the, the first iteration of the Wellsimple product, which was more of like a managed investor account offering was just the beginning. And our goal was really to build a whole suite of financial services products for, uh, for everyday users. And so the way trade started, which is the, the stock trading platform is very similar to how crypto started. We knew we wanted to do this and we wanted to test it out in a really small way. And we launched a small internal beta and then announced it publicly and then slowly onboarded clients. And over time, use that data and validation to figure out one, whether there's something here uh, and two, make sure we do it responsibly when we did figure out that there was something here because you know, you're know you dealing with products that uh, manage people's money or and have, have real consequences of... Uh, uh, of, of screwing that up if you don't do it well. And so, and so that was a, a key way of rolling out the trade product. And so when we were thinking about new products, I think we were, we had the same framework in mind of, you know, how do we do this in a super lean and simple way, but do it, do it safely at the same time. And so with crypto, I think there's always been this, um, interest in the space at, at Wellsimple. It's kind of been in, in the DNA of a few few folks at Wellsimple and it's never been a core focus of the business, but it was always both a technology and a and an asset class that was very interesting. And I think being in the technology business, uh, you know, you are always thinking about how do you get disrupted? And, you know, we do a lot of interesting work to build accessible financial services. And, you know, if you think about crypto on a long enough time scale, it really has the potential to be a foundational technology that can really change the way the financial services ecosystem is built and run. And then that becomes a very direct, both existential threat, but also an opportunity for a company like Wellsimple. And it's part of the reason I think we're seeing other institutions around uh, the world taking this more seriously, you know, whether it's hedge funds looking at this as an asset class or 
other banks and fintech companies looking to expand their crypto offerings. These are all like indicators of people starting to take this seriously and, and uh, both contributing to the growth of the ecosystem and also exploring its, its possibilities for their own businesses. And so for us, the initial version of crypto is, is really just a small step of embracing you know, what I just said. And, and so when we were thinking about doing it at Well Simple, it's thinking about that and also thinking about how do we do it responsibly. So for us, initially, we, you know, we launched the, the product to just support uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, which are the top two trading uh, cryptocurrencies uh, in the Wellsimple trade app, and do it in a closed loop way, which, which means we wouldn't uh, allow clients to deposit and withdraw these assets. Um, and it, you know, that was a little controversial, but it made it much easier for us to build a system that had less uh, had fewer points of failure and, and one that we could have much more control over. Uh, and then the same way we did with trade, we launched, uh, we announced that as a wait list at first, saw a ton of interest when we did that, and then slowly started on-ramping a few users at a time um, just to, to, to roll it out responsibly. Uh, and so that's the extent of the product today. And you know we were fortunate with the timing of, of us launching that, that it coincided with this more recent resurgence in crypto that we're seeing across across uh, um, all the tokens and, and the markets and, and and more broadly the conversations that are happening around it and so that I think it's been it's been good for well simple because it's put the crypto product um, on the map for for our users but it's also been a um, confirmation of the fact that you know investing in this technology and this product is, worth doing. And it's kind of reaffirming some of the early hypotheses and, and uh, confidence we had in going down this direction. And it's, it's giving us now the validation to really double down on, on this part of the product and, and think about how it fits into the broader World Simple ecosystem. Right. And uh, I, we definitely will be diving a little bit deeper into the more technical aspects of Bitcoin and, or not Bitcoin, so just crypto as a whole. But I'm just curious, before we do that, while the spotlight's still on you, what makes you the right person to lead Wealth Simple through this transition into um, uh, getting or allowing people to invest in uh, crypto? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I'm the right person, but I think you know what's been a common theme uh, in my in my career is just being at the right place at the right time, and and also making my intentions clear. Right. I think this is what I I mentioned as one way to really maximize your chance of, of getting what you want is uh is putting it out there and and having supporters who can who can back you right so i've been super fortunate at well simple that i've been surrounded by uh, a team there and, and and leaders there who have given me a lot of freedom and runway to take on a ton of responsibility and this started with the trade app when we first launched and and it kind of just evolved naturally into crypto as it was an it was both a natural extension of the the product itself, and so you know I was kind of closest to the product and knew the, the yeah we just owned all of the, the the experiences already, and so this was just another thing that that was added to my plate. And then you know at the same time I was personally super interested in in the space and and was spending a ton of my time outside of work getting smarter on what's happening here and and you know have de facto become kind of the go to person internally as a as the quote unquote expert in crypto, even though, you know, I'm, my own knowledge is like very limited. Uh, but I think, I think that plus my experience here, plus making some of my intentions clear has, 
just gave me the opportunity to be at the right place in the right time. I think time will tell whether I'm the right person uh, to be helping, you know, while simple go down this path, but, but, but I think yeah, it's just been a, a combination of luck and timing. And you're humble too. A great answer. <laughs> sort of on the note of crypto and like kind of diving deeper into that, uh, crypto can have a bit of a scary ring to it for a lot of, you know, older investors, even for people new to the market, um, you know, and all the people don't fully understand what it is and they're, they're a little bit hesitant in investing in it. Um, so how far along do you think we are in terms of mass adoption? Of crypto and what are the next steps you know for the industry as a whole not not just specifically for well simple in increasing that adoption um, and galvanizing that yeah this is a, it's a complicated question and, and you know i'm sure you'll hear different answers from from different people um it's i think crypto sparks a lot of debate a lot of interesting debate and and i'd say very few people i mean one i can guarantee you that nobody knows what's going to happen so you know anyone that's that's uh providing their their opinion or or speculation on, on where we're headed i think i think they're all probabilistic guesses based on how things have transpired so far and and early signs of new um just new signs we see in the market of, of things that are being developed and how people are adopting these things and, and extrapolating that to think through what the implications might be but but i think yeah different people will have different answers and so from my from my vantage point i think uh, we're super, super early and, you know, we're, we're probably multiple decades away from mass adoption. And I think the, you know, the reality is it is just from, from a probabilistic standpoint, like thinking that someone inventing a new form of money and having that actually work is like, no one would bet on that outcome being successful. And so the fact that, you know, Bitcoin has even made it this far is already, a kind of like a miracle outcome because uh, everything kind of had to go right. And there were a lot of points of failure throughout the last you know, 10 to 12 years where, where things could have gone, gone seriously wrong. But, you know, I think the fact that it hasn't is a testament to the, uh, the system, uh, to the incentives, to, you know, the optimizing for the game theory around it um, and kind of just all the issues that, the, the anti-fragility that's been demonstrated by, by Bitcoin, at least in particular, has, uh, has provided the foundation for the rest of the crypto, crypto ecosystem to evolve and experiment. So, um, so I'd say because of that, we have to really think about this whole space on, on like multi-decade timeframes. But at the same time, I think th there are a lot of uh, like interesting and positive indicators of, of adoption already, right? So the fact that you know, you and I are even talking about it is, is one super anecdotal version of these types of conversations that are happening everywhere. And, and those were not happening everywhere, you know, three or four years ago, or even last year, you know, when we were in the, the depths of the, the crypto bear market. Uh, and so that I think, plus institutions that provide access to the average consumer more directly embracing this will, will do a lot, I think, to improve adoption. So the fact that you can buy crypto on PayPal and now well simple and soon, you know, every other FinTech app and probably through your bank in the next few years is, is naturally going to make the accessibility part of this equation much, much easier than it is today. And so that'll be a big factor of adoption. And then I think as people realize that this isn't going away and as they get, as some of the more common criticisms and misconceptions about the technology and the asset class are are uh, addressed and, and people become more comfortable with it, 
I think you will see a lot more people embrace this, um, you know, whether it's as an asset class or as a tool or, or something else that we haven't really even seen happen yet. Uh, and in that sense, you know, it's not that different from any other disruptive technology in the past, right? Whether it's going from, you know, carriages to cars or, you know, from, or the, the, the start of the internet, like there were a lot of skeptics and there were a lot of scams through all of that as well. But over time, you know, there's more and more relevant use cases and, uh, people see the, the benefits and the value of it. And then it, it, it's like a slow, but, but natural transition. So yeah, I think, I think it's super, super early still, but a lot of encouraging signs for sure. Yeah. That's an excellent answer. And um, one of those, I guess, um, you know, applications that's come up uh, recently is like the, the idea of NFTs and like everything being traded on NFTs. Um, and I know that you're, you're a bit of a basketball fan as well from our, our ball simple day. So I was wondering what you think of like platforms like Top Shot. Um, and other NFTs where, where you can hold these like digital assets. Like, do you think that that's sort of some of the most exciting applications of blockchain? Do you think that's sort of a fad? Like, where do you see that going? Yeah. Yeah. I think NFTs are, are a very interesting application of this technology. I think that the main reason is because it, it starts with the art or the art artist as opposed to the technology. Right. So I think, Bitcoin was interesting and, and is interesting, but it's still like, it's not, it's a very boring and like um, technical and like very complicated subject matter, right? Like we're talking about finance and economics and sure there's a market for that and people who will see a lot of value in it. And, and it is super valuable, which is why it's you know, a trillion dollar asset and, and the, the foundation for everything else we're, we're able to talk about in crypto today. But it's very hard for it to get mainstream relevance beyond just like people speculating on the price or the price being the headline. Um, whereas NFTs, I think, is kind of flips that equation on its head. It starts with the art uh, or the artist, or you know, in this case, in the Top Shot example, it's it's basketball highlights, like things that have value or perceived value in and of themselves. And it's the technology that is the second layer that enables a unique way for artists to monetize for people to have like monetary value associated with things that they have perceived value over already. And that's like a super unique innovation that I think is very uniquely possible with crypto. And so it has a potential to really be kind of the first mainstream application that brings new people who would have either dismissed crypto or never heard about it to actually learn about the technology and, and, uh, through that, you know, experience the direct benefits of it. And so I think NFTs are going to be a, a super interesting design space for artists and creators and, and others to experiment with like direct to consumer type models for monetizing their work or capturing the value that they create and, and, you know, thinking through ways where they don't have dependencies on like centralized systems like a YouTube or a Spotify or whatever, right. For, for distribution. So I think the design space is, is, is vast. And, you know, it's, I mean, we've barely even started in, in exploring that uh, so far. So, so I think conceptually it's super interesting. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll definitely see a lot of interesting experiments that take place, you know, at the same time though, I think it's not too different from, from like ICOs from a couple of years ago where there were a few, legitimate, interesting projects built, but there was a ton of scams and, and people just trying to take advantage of the hype. And uh, unfortunately, I'm sure we'll see the same thing play out with NFTs, right? Because it's anytime you have money and, and incentives to, to 
to capture that. Uh, they're, they're, that it's just a natural um, inevitability. And so, you know, when that happens and, and to what extent there's like a correction or not, like I, I'm not able to speculate on that. But, but I think that's something someone should, people should definitely be aware of, you know, if they're considering mod, like putting monetary value behind, behind NFTs. And, and obviously none of this is, is financial advice, but I think, I, I think that's a very real likelihood, um, just, just given the, the nature of the beast. Uh, but, but I think in abstract, if you abstract away that, I think, I think the, this is kind of the first super interesting novel use case that's able to demonstrate real value without needing to focus on the technology first. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up about like putting the art, artist first because yeah, I've, I've, I'm a computer scientist, like a software engineer and I've, I've read the Bitcoin paper like three or four times and it's still like extremely hard for me to wrap my head around. Like I wouldn't say I understand it at all. So I think, yeah, like putting it in the, con- the consumer's hands and, and, and approaching it from product first is, is a really good way to kind of draw the, drive that adoption. And like you mentioned, like, you know, with any te- new technology, like with the beginning days of the internet, you know, there are a lot of Nigerian prints print scams going around, you know, with, uh, with all these like meme coins and like Dogecoin and things like that, like that's sort of inevitable with, you know, the in- initial adoption of new technology, but it's all about, you know, what is the lasting value and, and what is the value proposition of that new technology? Um, sort of related to Top Shot, if you could own one MBA highlight, which MBA highlight would you own? Oh man, it would have to be the Kawhi game winner yeah. <laughs> against the Sixers. Good answer. I, I'm sure. So I don't know if that's on Top Shot, but if it is, uh, it's for, for sure way out of my budget. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine how much that would cost. Yeah, uh, that's such an interesting point that you raised, like making that connection between humanizing crypto through giving, like through putting the artist first with NFTs, right? Like with, like you mentioned, with crypto, it can be an unwieldy thing for a lot of people because it still feels like, I don't know, like a Skynet economy kind of thing. And by putting a human face to it, I just kind of like had that aha moment when you, as you were going through that, like, okay, this could actually be a propulsive force towards encouraging adoption. And I just really, really love the aspect of NFTs that it empowers the artists. And when you see people like, are you familiar with uh, the Beeple drop? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's a, like an overnight success for like thirteen or fifteen years in the making, right? And after so long, like so many years of hearing so many stories of artists getting scammed, of getting um, their work like defaced, or just not getting what's there, what's due to them, I love that even now when people will go out and purchase their art on the NFT on uh, uh, via NFTs, artists are still able to benefit through the secondary market as well. Because artists collect royalties every time that um, and if that token is exchanging hands, mm-hmm. and I I think that's a first of all it's a beautiful thing. It's going to encourage more art in the world, and it's a cornerstone, I guess, of the economy, or at least I would like to think so. Or am I being too too idealistic? No, I I don't think so. I think you know if you it it, it doesn't have to be idealistic because you know the way I think about it, it's just it's sort of like a win win proposition, right? So mm-hmm. people aren't only doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, right? It's people are doing this because they see value in it. So I see value in being able to support art and artists that I care about. That's why people are buying these things. And, and sure, some people might be buying it purely to speculate or flip it. But, you know, we know with 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 physical art or, or any collectibles that 
people value those possessions. And, and I think the same can be true for, for digital goods. And then for the artist side, it's the same thing. I think for them, it's like, like with people's case, like he's just doing what he's been doing for 15 years and now has found a way to capture some of that value. And, and I think that is, you know, that they're, they should be able to do that. And, uh, and I think this is a technology that enables that to happen. And so I don't think we need to rely on like evangelism or idealism to, to spread this. I think people are free to use it or not use it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about crypto is that it is not imposed on anyone, right? Like people voluntarily choose to participate in these networks and to build on these open protocols if, you know, if they want to contribute. And it's, it, I think that's like the, the most fascinating part of this entire ecosystem is that it's, it's truly organic in the sense mm-hmm. that no, it's not any corporate agenda or government that's imposing this on anyone. It's, it's been grassroots from the beginning and, and continues to be a totally open set of platforms that people can opt in or opt out of. And, and what we're seeing overwhelmingly is that more and more people are choosing to opt in because it's objectively better on a lot of dimensions. And like going back to the very first discussion we had, everything has trade-offs and, and there's downsides to crypto as well, right? A few of which we've talked about with whether it's scams or, uh, or something else. Uh, but the existing systems have, have lots of downsides as well. And we're seeing with NFTs, it is demonstrating what are the better trade-offs to be made by choosing an open platform where artists and, and consumers can read each other directly without needing intermediaries. And, and that opens up a whole interesting set of possibilities that just weren't possible before. And, and art is just one small dimension of, oh, yeah. uh, of NFTs, right? Like if you think about the, the NFT token is just a set of standards and, and a way to represent and own digital scarcity. And so art is kind of the lowest hanging fruit of doing that because, you know, it, it, there's very few barriers to creating a digital asset and then being able to own it digitally, but you could ex- extrapolate this to any kind of asset or, or, or unique good that could have these properties help improve transparency and and um, just just make it easier to demonstrate ownership and transfer ownership. So eventually, I wouldn't be surprised if NFTs are the foundational backbone of like real estate and other physical goods and, and all kinds of use cases that you know it's it's super early for right now. And so I think I think art is just one example of that that's showing product market fit today. But, but I think it's just the beginning of, of what might be possible. Yeah, I saw uh, this happened, I think, January, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a, a plot of virtual land went for over a million dollars, which is ridiculous. Like, it's virtual land. Like, now that we're, we're monetizing that, too, who knows what's going to come in the future. And uh, speaking of, I guess, crypto adoption, you know, we see that uh, you, you kind of touched on this point earlier, but for example, Tesla now has, I don't know if you're, you're allowed to talk about this or not, but I, like, I'll ask you and then we'll see if you can mention it. But Tesla is $1.5 billion of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. What's Wealth Simple say? Uh, in, in terms of Are you having Bitcoin be putting on, their... on the balance sheet? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, uh, if we are, it's not going to be my decision. So, right. you know, this... It's a, 
much more complicated and, and uh, thoughtful process around the corporate treasuries. And, and so as far as I know, we have no plans to do that. And, but, but I think the act of Tesla doing this is, you know, along with other companies that have done it and, and other hedge funds that have done it is really the, 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 the main shelling point, I think for Bitcoin this year, that's different from many, many years in the past, right. Where it has been fighting this like speculative bubble for a long time. And I think the larger narratives around uh, like the, the kind of monetary supply increase with COVID relief packages and just generally this less trust in existing systems has made Bitcoin a reliable hedge in the eyes of some really important institutions. And so that I think provides a lot more credibility for the average person to take this asset seriously and, and just generally the, the broader market to take it more seriously. So I'd say that's, that's definitely good for crypto overall, because, you know, I don't, I don't see Tesla dumping their Bitcoin like in two months after, you know, and, and taking like a 30% profit or whatever they might make on it. And I think for, for, for these companies, it's a, it's a long-term position. And so uh, super, I think super bullish for, for Bitcoin specifically. Mm. So it's not like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, Michael Katchen. Let's get, uh, <laughs> let's get Bitcoin on the balance sheet. No, not, not right now. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully one day it'll happen. But uh, um, speaking, speaking of possible again, you know, over the past year or two years, you know, with, with COVID-19 and, you know, our slash Wall Street bets and, and all like this huge influx of retail investors kind of coming in, um, Wasselball has grown a lot and Wasselball's target market has grown a lot. Um, so how is Wasselball kind of positioning itself to take advantage of, you know, this influx of retail investors? I guess it's more of like a strategy question. Um, and how has Wasselball changed over the past couple of years, like with, you know, this huge increase in demand? I know that you were, you know, you left and you, and you came back as well. So there are a few months you weren't there, but um, you know, I'm assuming you've been in touch and, and everything with the team. So yeah, talk us through that, that transition and, and Wasselball becoming, you know, uh, one of the Canadian unicorns. Yeah, sure. So uh, in terms of the target market, I don't, I don't think these phenomena over the last couple of months has, has really changed anything for what's simple for us. The focus has always been on this, this demographic that, you know, we call the future majority, which is a, a huge market in, in Canada. And, and that hasn't changed with, with, uh, this recent phenomena. If anything, it's kind of demonstrated that this is the right market for us to focus on because it is, it's a growing population. It's an underserved population. And there's a lot of different products and services and things that we can provide to serve their needs. And, and that strategically hasn't, or our strategy around, around doing that hasn't changed at all. So, so in that sense, I, I don't think it's, it's any different. Uh, your, your second question was how things have changed. Yeah, as well, Simple's got a lot bigger. Like, how have they, you know, stayed focused on the priorities and, and, you know, as they've been expanding as a business? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, like any company going through such rapid growth, there's been, there's been some growing pains, but I think we've done, done really well to manage through that. And, you know, for us, it was particularly challenging because as we were experiencing the, this explosion in growth, is when we, had to adjust for the, the pandemic last year and, and went fully remote. And so, you know, there were a ton of different challenges just adjusting from an, an office environment to a totally remote first environment. So, so, you know, that 
just like everyone else presented a, a, a whole set of challenges. And then with the rapid growth, I think it's just required us to be much more thoughtful around just how we operate as a company on a day-to-day basis. So from things like internal communications and making sure new hires and teams are up to speed on what, what we're working on and why and how their work ladders up to a broader strategy, like those types of conversations and goals have to be much more at the forefront than, you know, when you're a hundred person team where it's much easier for everyone to know exactly what's going on. Uh, and so I think that that has been a big focus for, for our team is, is making sure those communication lines stay open. Um, I think the other way it's changed is now we just have a lot of focus on few big initiatives, right? So I think earlier on in Symbols history, we had different disparate products and services across geographies that we were focusing on. But now, you know, we've refined our, our mission and vision to be really focused on the Canadian consumer market and do it well across a, a set of products that are all complementary and, and fit into a broader strategy for serving the future majority. So I think having both a bigger team to tackle that opportunity and more uh, focus and precision around what we want to do and why has, uh, has just made it much clearer, much clearer what everyone's role is and how it fits into to this equation. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's been a big change. And then I think obviously with, with more people, it's, you know, we've been able to attract a ton of great people to, to well simple. And so, uh, it's, it's awesome to have the opportunity to work with super talented folks from across every department and, and function. And, um, I think we're a team of over 500 now, so it's a pretty, pretty wild growth. Damn. How big was it when you were there? Fun. When I was there, it was 280, and I think we hit 300. Ooh. And there was like a like an email that went or something like that. So wow, 500 in like a year and a half. That's that's crazy. Yeah, it's about double. Yeah, that's wild. Um, so we are getting close to time here. So I'm just gonna ask you one more question before we ask our inaugural or not inaugural, our classic final question, I guess. I guess, um, and that is, so we will we're planning on doing an episode dedicated to this in the future too. Um, surrounding the idea of investing advice for Gen Zers or just young or students, people in their early 20s, um, because there's still a lot of inertia for a lot of people who don't know anything about the space yet. And I, I, I know like people hesitate to come on here and give investment advice, but generally, if you if were somebody to come up to you and ask you, um, somebody in their early 20s were to come up to you and ask you, hey, Danish, like, I'm thinking about getting into investing. Like, how do you think I should follow? How do you think I should move forward with this? What would you say? Yeah, good question. And so, yeah, I won't give financial advice and, and maybe take this as life advice instead. Uh, and it's going to sound cheesy, but, but I think my advice would be to invest in yourself, right? And invest in knowledge. So when you're young, I think that the most you can do and the most beneficial thing you can do is really invest in building up a knowledge base and becoming smarter about the things that you're interested in. And, you know, if you're interested in making smart financial decisions, I think that is something to invest in, in terms of knowledge, uh, because you're going to hear all kinds of different advice from different people, you know, with, with people saying, having like diversified portfolios and, and kind of standard operating safe options that 
that have been tried and tested. And, and, you know, I wouldn't, I obviously wouldn't advise against that because I think it's, it works, but at the same time, I think people are generally a pattern I've noticed is people, you know, want to be much more self-sufficient and know what they're doing and why. And, and I think as a young person being well-informed about how to think about investing is a super valuable asset that unfortunately most people don't have just because it's not part of our day-to-day curriculum in school. And, you know, most people's parents don't really know what they're doing either. So they don't get good advice growing up and just don't really have the opportunity to, to learn this in a structured way. And so, you know, people end up learning on, on their own terms or through questionable sources and, you know, get opposing data points or conflicting perspectives. And, and then the reality is there obviously is no standard way to, to invest. And I think that the most people can do, and, and this is something I've learned as well, is just become smarter about the, the whole ecosystem and landscape, and then really understand what your own goals are and, and what your risk tolerance is, right? Because your understanding of, of that about your, your own, your own self will, will do more to help you figure out how you should be investing more than any soundbite or, or, you know, random out of context advice that, that any individual can give. Yeah. So everyone be wary of those TikTok investing <laughs> advice gurus. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and to your point too, like the invest, the uh, compound interest you gain on knowledge is just invaluable too. So building building a proper foundation for that is incredibly valuable. And uh, I guess like another point to the inertia uh, is that even for me, like when I was starting out, I had the same problem, which is why having a robo advisor like what Wealth Simple offers was a tremendous blessing for me because all I had to do was just put money. Again, this is not investment advice, like. I mean, like, I guess it does help both some out to get more people's money in there. But, <laughs> um, having a robo-advisor was uh, a, a blessing for me because all I had to do was put money in there. And then as I'm kind of like learning about everything, my money's already being invested for me. And, you know, World Simple, I love is that they're very transparent about how all their portfolios are performing. So even like based on what your risk tolerance is. So you, you can, if you're listening, can go ahead and make that choice for yourself. Um, so thank you for that. And Fouad, would you care to do the honors? Yes, actually really quick follow-up. Um, what resources do you think have been most impactful in um, kind of helping you learn about the investment space? Obviously you went to business school. So, you know, starting from a little bit more of an educated perspective than maybe some of us STEM kids, but um, yeah, what, what research do you recommend to, you know, start learning and investing in yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I think my challenge is that I've happened to like stumble on to working in fintech for like more than five years now. And so I've just been around the space so much. And so I haven't necessarily had the same journey of like, okay, I'm going to learn how to invest and then go through the process of figuring that out. Uh, so, so I don't know if I have like specific resources I would recommend, but I think one interesting thing to do is just go to the kind of foundational, um, sources of knowledge on these topics, right? So if you want to understand like how Warren Buffett thinks about investing, like read his book uh, around value investing, right? I think, I think there's a lot of people that try to peddle knowledge today who aren't the source of that knowledge, right? And, and I think in general, with, with anything, I think you're, you're best served to, to really go to the source of, of, of things that you're interested in. So I think there's, I mean, lots of great books on, on, 
on those types of topics. And I think that's a great place to start. But but also I think you know leveraging your own friends and community and figuring out people that you trust, like how they think about these decisions. Because like I said, you'll learn probably a bunch of different things from different people. And then it's figuring out how to how does that advice fit into to your own goals. Um, and I guess maybe one one advice I would give and and that I gave to that I wish I'd given to myself was to start early. Um, to the extent that you know you're able to actually afford to to invest, and obviously there's other considerations that apply to to each each person uh, in their own situation. But yeah, I think that the the power of of compound interest is, is a a wonder of the world, and and so it's it's important to take advantage of that. And and I think that that's kind of the biggest thing, regardless of specific strategies that any young person can do to to kind of universally benefit. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for the answer. I think. Personally, like there are so many people in my life who are, who are really knowledgeable about this. So I think the point that stood out to me most is just asking them, like, you know, asking them how they think through these decisions, like when they're buying a stock, like just literally just being at, like, how do you make this decision? Like what indicators are you looking at? You know, what charts are you looking at? Um, and I think that'd be, that'd be a really good way to learn and, and, and consider different opinions. Um, cool. So yeah, coming up to our big finale, um, the question we like to ask all our guests before, you know, we say goodbye to them. And once again, thank you so much for coming on. We're a little bit over time. Uh, hopefully you can stick around for this last question. Um, and the question is, if you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions or even billions of people, uh, what message would you put on it and why? Oh man, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If it had to be one message, I think it would be, uh, be insatiably curious you know, one thing that I think, and, and, you know, this isn't really an original insight or anything, but one thing I've noticed from people who have been most successful is that they all share this common trait of being super curious and always seeking knowledge. And this has been kind of a theme that's been present throughout our conversation, but I think knowledge is power and that sounds cliche, but there's so much knowledge that's easily accessible to anyone today. And, and the barriers to accessing that are lower and lower every day. And, you know, when we were kids, you know, you're innately born to be curious. Like if you spend time with any, any young child, you'll see the like awe and wonder that they have about the world. And, you know, unfortunately, as we get older, that gets beaten out of us by conforming to the school system and society and our parents. And, you know, it's, and we all end up becoming molded into some version of the, the person that people want us to be. And, and some people are able to like escape that and, and find their, this innate curiosity and, and really pursue it to, to like a, a, to the, to its fullest extent or other people somehow, resist this urge to conform and, and are able to maintain that. But in, in either case, I think those, those who end up being super curious are just going to be much better off in, in kind of every dimension. And so uh, I, I think do it for the sake of doing it, not for any, any specific outcome. But I think, you know, if I think of back on my own journey so far, that's probably been one of the most valuable lessons that I've learned. And, and I don't know why I, have this desire and, and whether it's like something that was cultivated or not, but, you know, if I just think about all the things that, and, you know, even crypto as an example, right? Like there's no, 
anyone who's an expert in crypto couldn't have been an expert for more than 10 years because it didn't really mm-hmm. exist as a, as a field. And sure, like cryptography and other things did. But if you think about anyone who's super knowledgeable in the space today, like they were not relevant in the space 10 years ago because it didn't exist. And so that's just one example of like, it's just curiosity and the same knowledge and, and resources that are available to anyone with an internet connection um, that helped me develop my interest and, and cultivate my uh, my ability to like be in the position that I'm in now. And, and I think, you know, you replace that with anything else for anyone else. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a, I think a vital characteristic of, of anyone who wants to be successful. I love that point. And uh, I mean, I also love the point that we're all just born scientists. Like you said, you know, growing up as kids, you're so bright eyed and bushy tailed, just full of questions. And a lot of people just get annoyed by kids who are just, you know, stop asking why for a second. Let me just like, let me relax. Let me catch a breath. And there's, I don't even know if this is Einstein's quote or not, because everything is misattributed on the internet these days. But he allegedly said, um, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. And, you know, that's, that's Einstein. Frigailed is one of the smartest people in the world, but mm-hmm. I think you're completely right. Like once you f- start following your curiosity and let that guide your life, things just start to be, become a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. You know, like if you're chasing your curiosity rather than money or women or whatever your vice <laughs> may be, um, I think curiosity <laughs> is a beautiful North star to have. So um, thank you for that. And I know we want to be mindful of your time because you've graced us with your presence uh, for quite a while now. It's been an hour. So Danish, is there anywhere that people can find you? Do you have any last thoughts before we uh, close off? Oh, no, this is a great, great conversation. I think in terms of finding me, I think Twitter is probably the, the best place. I don't really maintain much other social media presence, but yeah, Twitter is definitely the, the go-to spot. I love that. And we'll uh, definitely link it in the description as well. So again, Danish, thank you so much for your time today. Fuad, any last farewells, any last thoughts? No, it was, it was great chatting. And yeah, um, thank you so much for coming on for your time. I think I learned a lot. Um, and your last one about, you know, curiosity and like how, you know, crypto's only been around for 10 years. So anyone who's an expert in it learned about this 10 years ago. I was thinking like about a friend of mine in, in, in our friend group who is like regarded as like the crypto expert. And I was like, yeah, like what's stopping me from like just asking him yeah. and like what, what, where he's learned, like what he's learned and, and really just trying to double down on that. So yeah, you've, you've definitely inspired me to, to take that curiosity and, and ask those questions. So thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.